We read the Word of God this evening in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. The book of Ephesians is probably one of the more familiar New Testament books to us. Chapter 5, because of its instruction regarding marriage, is very familiar to us. But what is not so familiar is the words of our text in verse 21. Let's read the whole chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, and neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, that is, formerly, but now are ye light in the, wor- in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be not ye unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. 
For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. That's the reading of the word. The text is, as I said, verse 21, the end of a sentence that begins in verse 18. I'll reread starting there. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the text, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God indicated that this is a rather unfamiliar text in a very familiar book. And the book is familiar in that we're all aware, if we've studied the New Testament very much at all, that the book of Ephesians is divided up into two parts, the doctrine of the church and then the life of the church. What God has done in His electing of the church, His redemption of the church, and His gathering of the church... And now how we ought to live a life that manifests we understand what the church is. God the Father said, I choose you to be my bride. God the Son says, I redeemed you unto myself. And God the Holy Spirit says, I gather you to be mine and unite you into one. That's familiar to us. The book of Ephesians is the book of the church as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, the second half of the book says that as the church is one, having been chosen, redeemed, and gathered into one, we ought to live that unity. Live as the gathered bride of Christ. Live in peace. And that's how chapter 4 begins. I beseech you to walk worthy of your calling with lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another. And then in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There it is, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the theme of this second half of the epistle. Live in that unity. That's the exhortation to the church tonight. Now, the book goes on in that second half to make a number of points, one of which is that there is no possibility of living together as you ought in unholiness. And so chapter 4 and even in the beginning of chapter 5 is exhortation to put away sin, put off the old man, put on the new. There cannot be a life of peace in the church without holiness. Then, as we come closer to our text, the Apostle says the power for that unity, the power to live in peace and unity is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he began this second half that way too. It's the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. Very interestingly, you might not say that the manifestations of the Spirit in the church are the three S's that I'm going to propose. There are other manifestations of the Spirit, but in the immediate context of our text, there are three S's. If you are filled with the Spirit, you're going to be sober, number one. And that's why he began, even before he talked about the Spirit in verse 18, says, don't be drunk with wine. In drunkenness, there's excess. You want to have energy, you want to have excitement, you want to be enthused, you want to be able to do things that you'd never dare do. Don't go to the bottle for that. The Spirit is the one who enables you to do all those things. So, the first manifestation of the work of the Spirit in you is that you do not want to abuse alcohol. There's a whole sermon in that. The second is that if you are filled with the Spirit, the Word says you will be a speaking and singing people. That's verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So that's the second S. Sobriety, speaking and singing. And the third S is our text. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That is, we who have the Spirit and understand what the church is are going to live this kind of life. We will submit, all of us, to everyone else. I'm not going to lord it over you. I don't want any dominion over you. I want to be under you, to be your servant. And when the Spirit is working, that will be evident in the church of Christ. Number one, that we're sober. Number two, that we're a singing, speaking people, encouraging each other with that speaking and singing. And number three, that we are people who submit one to another. So let me call your attention this evening to that text under the theme, submitting to each other. Very simple, submitting to each other. In the first point, I want to explain the teaching of the text. In the second point, I want to have all application. And then in the third place, I want to say, why is it that the people of God would be willing to do this? So, what this means, submitting to each other, how this shows submitting to each other, and why believers do so. That is, why we submit to each other. And it's all there in the text But remember, the whole of the second point is going to be application of this Word. That is the manifestation of this reality in our lives. Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That's the simple text. Submit yourselves to each other. So we need to begin with the definition of submission which is very simply that we put ourselves under the authority of another. And you children can remember that. You, in your mind and in your heart, say to yourself, I am going to live under someone else. You live under your parents' children so that they govern your lives. You live under the elders, all of us, so that they in a certain way govern your lives. That submission, in some respect, and what respect it is, is very important tonight, but in some respect, the one that you're under 
controls how you live. You can remember that word submission in this way. Children, the water craft that goes under the water is called a submarine. Sub means under. The part of the floor that the builders put down before they put the linoleum or the carpet on top is called the subfloor. It's under the floor. And so we remember what submission is in that way that we put ourselves under others. Now, you might remember that word this way too, and now I'm not doing justice to the Latin origin of submission, but you may remember it this way, that all of us make it our mission to put ourselves under all of the other members. It's our commitment. It's our promise. Now, genuine submission has certain characteristics, and you recognize it, but I want you to recognize it not, first of all, in other people, but you ought to recognize it in yourself, because most of the characteristics of submission are invisible. They're internal. And the first characteristic of genuine submission, because there are counterfeits, counterfeits, is that it is an attitude. It's not, first of all, an action. It's something that I feel and think and desire. And here, the distinction between submission and obedience is important. You can't obey someone who's over you without having submission in your heart. You may do what they say without submitting. You ought not, but you can. Submission is an attitude where I, in my mind and heart, am under them. I am, and I'm under them in that I esteem them, I reverence them, I fear them. And now you understand why I said don't look at other people because you can't see that in other people. But you can know that in yourself. Are you submissive, children, to your parents? You know that, but others might not. Are we submissive to our elders? You know that, others might not. So that's where we begin with submission's characteristics. Secondly, submission is voluntary. It's never forced never coerced. I'm never compelled to submit. I may be told by the Word of God to do so, but no one can twist my arm or threaten me with any physical threat to submit. I want to submit. And if I don't want to submit, then I am not submitting. Obedience can be forced, not submission. And then the third place, the characteristics of submission include that it proceeds from love. It's what Paul says in Galatians 5.13, by love serve one another. So, an attitude of the heart, a willing putting myself under, that proceeds from love. You're not surprised by any of that, nor are you surprised to hear that the Bible talks about five special areas of submission And that's not what our text is talking about, but to understand our text, it's helpful to understand that there are five circles of authority. And the Apostle goes on to talk about them, three of them, in the following chapters. Wives are to submit to their husbands with an attitude of reverence, willingly, motivated by love, 
the wife puts herself under the authority of her husband so that in a certain respect, not every respect, but a very important one, she is governed by him. Then the book goes on in chapter 6 to say there is another sphere of authority, and that's the children under their parents. You children have an attitude toward your parents that esteems them highly. You reverence them. You fear them. And so willingly, you put yourself under their authority. And in a very important respect, not every respect, but a very important one, they govern you. Tomorrow morning, some of you may go to work. Some of you may be masters, that is, business owners. Others of you may be servants. And that's what Paul speaks about in chapter 6, verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling. There he's speaking to the attitude of the heart. And then what Paul doesn't talk about in Ephesians, he talks about in other epistles. Remember, Wives to husbands, children to parents, workers to their employers. Then there are elders who are over the members of the congregation, and there are citizens of a country who submit to the magistrate, the police, and the judge, and the governor, and the president. In all those areas, there needs to be a conscious, willing putting of ourselves under the authority of another. What's surprising about our text is that it's not talking about those five spheres. It's talking about everyone putting himself or herself under everyone else. So that in a very certain way, everyone else determines how I am going to live. That's the teaching of the text. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. You submit to them. And you submit to them. And I and you submit to all of them. So it might not be a bad idea, just if you're in the front, you might not want to crane your neck and your head. But imagine all of the other members of the congregation glance around a little bit and say, I am called by Jesus Christ in this text to put myself under every other member of the church. Every other member. Now that's so surprising that some, when they come to this passage in Ephesians say, no, no, that's not what it means. The apostle here is simply giving a chapter heading, as it were, with no specific application until you get to wives and children and servants and so forth. This is simply a title for the next section. Now, it certainly is a title for the next section, but it has its own significance for itself. We acknowledge that the other people in the church have, in some respect, the say-so in my life. How that works out is reserved for the second point. I'm still explaining that. This isn't the only text that teaches that, which might 
be helpful for you. If this were the only text and the minister were explaining this is the interpretation of the text, you might question it. But if you just think about the rest of the Scripture, then you say this makes sense. In fact, it makes such sense that you don't understand Christianity and the Christian life unless you understand this. Let me give you six texts. Three of them are general and three of them very specific that make you say, oh yes, this has its own application. In Romans 15 verse 1, Paul says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. So there's a general teaching that the strong members of the congregation ought not live in such a way that the weaker ones serve them, but that they who are strong serve the weak and not please yourself. There's a general passage. Paul had already said in Romans 12 verse 10 that in honor for the others we must prefer the others. Have a preference, not for yourself, but for others. In Philippians 2 and verse 3, a passage that many young couples are asking ministers to use for their weddings, and that's a a good thing because it has marvelous application for couples. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than himself. Are you getting a sense for what the Bible teaches? If not, then listen to these specific passages where, first of all, in Matthew 20, Jesus was straightening out the thinking of the disciples who had it all wrong. Remember, He gathered His disciples around Him. They were learning about the kingdom and life in the kingdom. And two of them, you're familiar with this passage, wanted to have an important place in the kingdom. And they even got their mother to ask Jesus, give them an important place. One on the right, one on the left in the kingdom. And Jesus said, you don't know the beginning of what my life and kingdom and church are all, is all about. If you want to be important in the church, then you become a servant. If you want to be useful in the church, then you go under all of the other members so that from down below you are a blessing to every other member. The people of God are to subject themselves one to another. That's Jesus' specific teaching in Matthew chapter 20. And Peter, who is one of those who listened to that, wrote his epistle, talked about these areas, specific areas of authority and submission, and ended his letter by saying, Yea, all of you be subject one to another. Where Paul in Ephesians begins the section of these special areas of authority, Peter concludes his section that way. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And isn't that what Paul meant when he said in Galatians 5, verse 13, by love, serve one another. The word there is be a slave to others. In your mind, in your heart, you want Put yourself under the others. Now, I need to make a clarification here quickly because you children might be ready to go home tonight and say to mom or dad, now we're going to tell you when is bedtime. You are under us. No, no. 
This does not turn those special spheres of authority on their head. It's simply to say that all of us put ourselves under in a certain way every other person. Now before I go on to the second point of the application, there are two things that are helpful for us to hear in order to understand that truth. That is, bigger biblical principles that help us understand how Jesus could be teaching such a thing. And the first is that with respect to salvation, we're all equal. We're all equal. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all children of God. That's how the apostle began chapter 5. That's why I bring this up. I'm not simply inventing something to help you understand. The apostle himself helps us understand this. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. You and I are all brothers and sisters. There's one Father, God, and in this family of faith there is one sibling who has authority over all of the other siblings, and that is Jesus Christ. And the rest of us are equal in a very important respect, in the respect of salvation. That's why Paul could say in another letter, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ. He's not teaching there that if you're male, you may be female, or female, you may become male. He's not saying anything like that. He's simply saying that when it comes to salvation, there's a leveling of all of us. So start there. There's an equality between and among all of the members. And the second biblical truth that helps us understand this is that even in the special areas of authority, the one in authority is there to serve the one under authority and not the other way around. When God put men as heads of women and parents as authorities over their children and elders as rulers in the congregation, He did not give them that position in order that those under them could serve them, but so that they in authority could serve those under them. And that helps us understand that we're all servants. We're all servants, no matter where we live in the church of Jesus Christ, no matter what position we have. I told a granddaughter this noon after dinner, when I explained briefly this text as part of our devotions, I said to her, Honey, if you ever find a boy who wants to marry you, and you get the feeling that he wants to marry you because you're going to be a good servant of his, run for your life. And then because we have almost all grandsons and very few granddaughters, I turned to the six or seven son, grandsons and said to them, if you ever dare try to find a wife in order that they may be your servant, then you need to repent and learn the basic truth of what it means to be a Christian. You will be a servant to your wife. We're all Servants, understand the nature even of those who are in authority. And now this sphere says, no one 
on this earth is going to demand this of you. It's always freely given. And every child of God says to himself in obedience to the Word of God, I want to be a servant of every other member. Now I'm tempted to say at this point, can you imagine congregational life and family life when everyone is thinking this way? What a marvelous way to live in the church of Christ. I want to be your servant. I want to bless you and do you good in love. I want to be a help to you. That's very difficult though, and that's why I want to make the second point this evening, all application. And in that application, point out that although submission is an attitude, it's something within us, it's going to show in how we speak and how we act. It's going to show in some very important ways. And I want to begin negatively because our sinful natures need to be rebuked. Mine does, and yours does too. Let me describe the opposite for a moment and then let the positive be the counterpoint to that and point out in the first place that because submission is supposed to recognize those above us as determining how I live, those who don't submit don't think about those other members of the congregation. They're thoughtless. They're characterized by thoughtlessness. They act without thinking. When they do something, they're not taking that action with this question in mind, how am what I going to do, how is what I'm going to do going to affect my neighbors, my parents, my children, my spouse, and the fellow members of the congregation. He just does it because he's thinking about himself and what he wants. A servant mentality is the mentality that every act I take is taken with forethought about everyone else in the congregation too. From the mundane question, what are you going to do when the doxology is finished and the elders exit and you do too? Where are you going to go? Think about that for a moment. Is it going to be determined by what you want and what pleases you, or will it be determined by what is a blessing to others? Now that's easy for a minister who never exits immediately to make that kind of application and perhaps have that kind of rebuke of you. But let me make an application that I've been thinking about for myself in the last little while when the Synod just last year appointed my replacement and put on my radar the fact that in a couple of years I'm going to be finished with a full-time ministry and the word retirement comes to mind. I don't like that word. I'm still healthy and God willing I want to work. But I'm going to have to put down my work at the seminary sometime in the next three, four, five years. What am I going to do as a retired man? I better be thinking about you. Not about me. Not about what I want. But about you. 
about my children and my grandchildren and the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, if I am thoughtless about you, then it's going to manifest that I don't know what it means to be a servant. I'm a servant of all of you. Not just because I'm in the office, but because I am a Christian. A servant is not thoughtless. Secondly, because submission is a service, the man who refuses or woman to submit to the others wants to lord it over others. He wants his way. He wants his way, and he's going to get his way. And he's going to do anything that he can and everything that he needs to do to get his way. He's going to push his will and his desires on the other members of the congregation. So he doesn't listen to you. He pretends to listen to you, but he's not listening. He only wants you to listen to him so that you may be convinced by his reasoning that his way is going to go. And this is how ugly it gets in the church of Christ. And this is found in every one of us. We don't want to listen. And now I can make application to consistory meetings and congregational meetings and classical meetings and synodical meetings and school board meetings and society meetings and all the other meetings where Christians gather together to make decisions. Those meetings are all intended so that you have the opportunity to speak but you first of all have the duty to listen to the others who speak. So that though you came to the meeting with a determination to vote one way, you are willing, you're willing to listen to the others and be convinced to vote the other way on something like a building project or something far more significant. These are deliberative assemblies. If they weren't intended to deliberate, then we would simply come to vote. Be efficient with your time. Don't waste time. So much time talking and trying to persuade. Just vote. But that's not how Christians make decisions together. They listen to others. They have an inclination as to how they want to vote, but they say, I'm a servant, and I'm going to put myself under all of the other members too, and no matter who is speaking, I'm going to give due consideration to what they say so that I am willing to change my mind. If I don't, then I'm always right and never wrong. Always right and never wrong. And that's been the ruin of church members. Someone begins a debate in an issue with a closed mind and it's impossible to convince him of anything else. It's been the undoing of church members. Watch that man leave because he didn't get his way. It's been the undoing of marriages. Watch that woman leave the marriage because she didn't get her way. It led to chaos and families and bitter ends of debates and consistories. We're not lords. We have to listen to the other members under whom we live and whose opinions are important. They might not be right, but we must listen to them. And because submission means that we're not sovereign, we ourselves may be corrected, willing to be corrected. 
Oh, that's a part of our nature to hate to be corrected. We resent criticism. That's true for office bearers and ministers and elders. It's true for janitors and pianists and organists and building committees and teachers and everyone. We don't like anyone to tell us that we've done something that maybe ought not to have been done or could do something a little bit better. The ministers need to have an ear open to the elders to listen to what the elders say and improve. Janitors, pianists, everyone. We're servants. We're not above criticism. And if we are, then in the end we're going to be a a quitter. I'm leaving. And then the church has to convince them not to leave. And maybe they don't leave, but they're bitter and cynical because they didn't get their way. That's negative. Let's be willing to be wrong. Let's be willing to be corrected. Let's be willing to listen. But let's also be positive. The law that governs my life in the church of Christ is the law of love. And by love, I'm going to serve you. By love, I'm going to live for you. And by love, I'm going to die for you if that's necessary. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. The law that governs my life is the law of love. This is basic Christianity. This is nothing profound. I want tomorrow morning to wake up and be governed by one simple law. Love God. And loving God, I'm going to love you. And the manifestation of that love is that I'm going to live for you. And if necessary, I'm going to die for you. That's the way we need to live in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's start with young people. Sometimes I wonder about the way we set up young people's society and young people's activities. You sometimes get the impression that the adults think that they need to make the children happy and serve the young people and do things for them and create fun activities for them. And then, though those are not improper, we ought to ask ourselves, ought we not be asking them to learn how to serve And would not that be the better way to organize a society, at least to have a branch of the activity that we serve? I've heard criticism at times of some Christian schools who require their students to engage in a service project as a requirement before they graduate. Now, there may be some reason to criticize that, but it seems to me that this is what we want to teach our young people and children. Serve others. It's a marvelous thing, people of God, when there's a flood down south to go to Alabama and help the people of God there rebuild their homes and paint their walls and dig the mud out of their basements. That's a marvelous thing. Let's do that more. But let's do that here. And you young people, perhaps, when you have your organizational meeting, ask yourselves the question whether you are really training yourselves to serve the other members of the church. Serve. Bible studies can do that too. I think it's probably originated in First Church many generations ago where the, one of the Bible studies of women was called the Dorcas Society. It's a funny word, isn't it, children? Dorcas. 
That's the name of a woman who in the Bible knit sweaters for poor people. And the women of First Church many years ago had a Bible study where in addition to studying the Bible, they would make things for the poor people. That's Mary Martha society, isn't it? One studied the Word and loved the Bible and to listen to the words of Jesus, and the other loved to serve. And these women in that Mary Martha society got together to do both. Sit at the feet of Jesus and learn His Word and also serve. Fathers, ask your family at devotions, how can we as a family serve the other members of First Protestant Reformed Church? How can we live for the well-being of all of the other members, what can we do to be a blessing to this congregation? And then model it. Model it in such a way that when you die, fathers, your children naturally ask that question with their children because you were a servant, not in your words only, but also in your life. You showed them that you were ruled by the law of love. And you were willing to live and even die for the other members in the congregation. Can you imagine families and churches where everyone says, I want to put myself under every other member. What a marvelous way to live in the church of Christ. Now, draw a circle, another circle, and imagine that that circle is the fear of God. Only those who live consciously in that circle, in the fear of God, are going to live this way. You see, you've noticed that I've omitted the second half of the text in my explanation and application so far. The text reads, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And that word in, whenever you find it in the Bible, ought to make you draw a circle and put something in that circle. In. And this circle has in it the fear of God. And we must live in that circle. And as soon as we go out of that circle and we don't fear God, we're never going to be servants of one another. We're never going to subject ourselves to each other. Only in it. And the closer we get to the center of that circle, of the fear of God, the more no one is going to have to compel us to be a servant of others. And I am more and more going to be willing and eager to go under all of you and give my life and give my death for you. The fear of God. The fear of God is not terror of God. It's respect for God and reverence for Him. And such high esteem, you can't imagine esteeming anyone more highly than that. At the center of God and all of God's work stands the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father who said to you, I choose you to be mine, said to His Son, go 
and redeem them and live for them and die for them. And he did. And lived all of his life not waking up in the morning saying, how can they serve me? But saying, how can I live and die for them? Thirty-three and a half years. That may seem young to you. It is. But for thirty-three and a half years, he had no pleasure for himself. He woke up as a servant with a servant's heart. Imagine Jesus coming thinking, how can I use you to make me happy? Imagine that. How horrendous. Every day he woke up from the rest, tired, bearing the burden of all of your sins, knowing that at the end of his life he had to be crushed by the burden of all of your sins so that he lived for you and then he died for you. And if you know that, in the center of this circle of the fear of God, if you live in the shadow of that cross, then you say, there's nothing I want to do besides serve others. I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful for what He did for me. I want to live and die for everyone else. What a beautiful way to live in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, if I think of one of the other members of the church, now you just imagine that one that you thought about that you cringed being a servant of. Just imagine him or her again. And imagine yourself going under them and living for their blessing and doing good to them. And say to yourself, but I don't want to because they're such a miserable person. Because I know them. I know what they've done to me. They don't like me. In fact, They've done evil to me. And then stop yourself and ask, do I really fear God? Do I understand what God did for me? How the Lord Jesus Christ came under me? He came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. He went under me, sinner, who always I'm doing him evil. Yet today, and I will tomorrow, I'm going to sin against him. And yet he lived and he died for me. That's what I want to do, to live in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there will be peace, a place of quiet rest. We'll always battle sin. We will. But when we sin, we quickly say, I'm sorry, I hurt you, forgive me. And I go under you and say again, how can I serve you? Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the Lord Jesus. We thank Thee that He stooped all the way down, not only to wash our feet, but to forgive our sins as a servant. God grant us peace in the church. And when we fail to submit to each other, 
then show us Jesus and strengthen our faith and bring us to embrace Him more and more and to love Him and loving Him, love each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.